мною принято решение о проведении специальной военной операции. We are under attack. It is an attack against Western democracies and on the institutions that bind them. What Russia is much more interested in doing is depicting the West as a failure. Regiment President Yanukovych, they were trying to protect their enormous wealth. This is criminal violence. Hi everyone, welcome to Kremlin File, and we are giving a huge, huge welcome today to David McCloskey. Hello, David. Hi. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thank you. Great. Thanks, thanks. Uh, we're just going to zoom right in, okay, David? Let's do it. All right. Uh, yeah, zoom on do Zoom. Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, um, but we'd like to begin with Syria. Okay, let's go there first. Yeah. Uh, you were a CIA analyst, right, serving in Damascus at the Damascus station when the Arab Spring started sweeping across the Middle East. Okay, can you give us, for, this, is a, this is a topic that very, very few people know a lot about for obvious reasons. Can you give us a little bit of information, first of all, on the beginnings of the actual revolution itself? In Syria. Sure. Yeah. yeah no. Uh, of course. You know. Um, so Syria, th that uprising began. Really, the protest movement began in the spring of 2011, and it was coming on the heels. You know, just really months after um, Ben Ali fled Tunisia, and uh, as you know, the sort of massive protests that we saw in Cairo in Tahrir Square. Were, were weakening the Mubarak regime. And so Syria was very much sort of part of this process of um, really populations that had lived under fairly ossified autocracies that had existed throughout most of the region going back decades. You had people who, who looked at these other countries, looked at people actually out in the streets and said, it doesn't have to be this way, you know, and it really, um, the first weeks and months of Syria um, before we slipped into what began as, you know, kind of a low grade insurgency. And then eventually for a whole bunch of reasons we can discuss became a civil war. There was a period of time where you had Syrians who had lived for at that point, 40 years, uh, a little bit more under Assad family rule had decided, you know, the collective switch had actually flipped in most people's minds and they said, look, we can we can achieve a better future in terms of, you know, economic rights, in terms of dignity, in terms of political rights, um, and took to the streets to demand that. Now, Syria is complicated, right? So it wasn't it was not long before the nature of that uprising began to take on ethnic and sectarian overtones, right? And those were present fairly early on in terms of where protests happened. You know, you didn't see them happening for the most part in parts of the country that were um, not Sunni Arab, right? So there was a complexity there that mirrors the civil war um, and unrest in, in Lebanon and Iraq that makes Syria um, very, very different from just sort of, a, you know, popular uprisings that we may have seen in Eastern Europe in, in the late 80s. Um, or in other parts of the Arab world that are more homogenous. 
but um you know there was there was a period of time there where um it was largely peaceful uh the demands on the part of most of the protesters were not necessarily maximalist it did not start as a, a you know with demands that assad step down or that the regime be deconstructed it started with far more um you know political reforms that had been ignored or sort of mooted for for years you know economic protests against the way the Assad family managed the country and the, and the, um, you know, sort of the, the, the cash uh, flows in the country. Um, and really over the course of that summer, which would have been the summer of 2011, you had massive protests, you know, tens of thousands of people. I mean, this, this kind of thing in Syria, it was shocking for us who had spent years working on this, you know, on Syria to see this level of, you know, the whole society kind of seemed, apolitical and apathetic in a lot of ways. And then all of a sudden this, you know, everyone's see this collective shift. It was really remarkable to see. Um, unfortunately what happened and, and the reason why the conflict became so bloody was that, you know, the regime kind of waffled initially. Um, and, and they, ex, you know, sort of accepted some demands, but then cracked down in some places. And you saw this cycle of protest, People get killed by the security services. There are funerals, mm-hmm. more protests that get bigger, more people get killed. Um, there was a characterization, which I'll, which I'll note early on in a lot of the press, both in the region and in the West, that um, suggested that in those first, maybe the first year that the Syrian regime was really brutally suppressing the uprising. And although there was a tremendous amount of state levied brutality, the response was actually more one of indecision and kind of waffling between different um, uh, different kind of carrots and sticks, none of which was either sufficient to appease the, you know, the protesters nor strong enough to kind of suppress the dissent. And you got into this spiral. And by the way, the, the, the mechanism that the regime was, was using in those for, in that first, I'd call it the first year was its security services primarily not its military not like it, it was not truly it had not yet gone into a scorched earth military campaign which is what eventually happened but this spiral kind of took hold and what happened was the regime by the way um was fairly comfortable with the tilt to violence and in fact you know probably did things like releasing Salafi jihadists from prison in order to fuel an uprising that would be far more radicalized, um, far less appealing to us, and far and, and very sort of fragmenting and fracturing to the ethnic and sectarian makeup of the society. So the the, the insurgency and the violence sort of began that way, and then you ended up in a cycle of, you know, insurgent groups forming, arming, a lot of veterans from Iraq, you know, uh, coming to Syria or, or taking part in, in the insurgency, and it just tilted into, into a civil war. Okay. Can I, can I ask you to just go back for one second? Yeah. Because you said something that I think um, characterizes a lot of our modern political you know, things, the apathetic nature mm. of politics of the what was that initial spark that really started the protests themselves? 
Well, the, you know, there was a tremendous amount of kindling, right? So I think that's one thing just to note is that that the spark hit on a country that, you know, had been um, ruled by the family for 40 years, extremely predatory security services, extremely, um, you know, predatory patronage networks, uh, a drought that had moved people into shanty towns around the major cities, uh, you know, for, for five to seven years prior to that. So there's a tremendous amount of, of kindling for this. Um, uh, but the spark itself um, was the uh, effectively the, the arrest and the likely torture of a group of, of school children in the South, in Darak, um, that was brutal and the response was mismanaged uh, by the security services and the regime. So you really had, and and that's happening in the context of what's going on in the region, right? So you have that spark where you have, you know, an extremely, um, uh, you know, an act of, of deprivation on the part of the regime, an act of brutality that, that offends the sensibilities of, of obviously everyone down in that southern city, um, including many of its many of its leaders, uh, and it's taking place in the context where everyone in that city can see what's happened in Tunisia and Egypt and thinks we don't have to take this in the way that we might have six months ago. Okay. All right. Thanks. Yeah. I actually saw the video, and it was a little boy who um, went and just wrote freedom, and that's what set everything um. off. And the uh, crackdown against children, and it was—I mean, it was um, horrific. Yeah, yeah the, you know, and what what we had seen prior to this—I mean, even prior to Tunisia—was, you know, it was not uncommon for, and, and frankly, the state, the Syrian state, had become, and its institutions had become so sort of hollow that the only hmm. the only effective institutions, or, or you know. were really the security services and and they were the ones that had the surface area with the population. Right. Um, And there were incidents going back a couple years where there were similar, you know, sort of brutality response by the local citizenry. And then eventually either through some combination of suppression or, you know, paying off, you know, whoever it might be, the security services could sort of keep it down, you know, tamp things down. The difference in this context was inside the minds of Syrians, they now believed that something was different, you know. So so that that incident was not in and of itself particularly unique, unfortunately, um, hmm. but the response to it was. And that kindling had always been there, you know, but it – the, the spark in the sense was was lit at precisely the right time. Yeah, and they organized via you no know, internet as well. Maybe that also aided in a certain way of being able to mobilize people and to spread information of what was happening. I I think that was helpful. I'm of the I'm of it, there's no doubt that that was helpful. Full stop. You know, you you had um, what were called um, local coordinating committees that that popped up in most major cities and provinces that did the work of trying to organize protests and civil resistance. I, I do think so that's true. I do think that the role of 
those networks and frankly, you know, social media in general ends up getting a little bit overstated in a lot of ways. I think that the, the organizational mechanisms were, um, well, in fact, one thing the regime did a pretty good job of early on was limiting connections between these groups and cities so that the response to local atrocities, deprivations, arrest, whatever, um, would sort of stay local, but it was it was much more facilitated through commercial and family and tribal networks that existed more at kind of the provincial or city level, I think. Yeah. Horrible. Um, now, since I focus on Russia, um, we saw, you know, the Syrian pro- protesters gaining traction. And then you suddenly see this shift and you see basically Assad reaching out to Iran and Russia. I mean, yeah. Russia, Russia officially got involved in, in the summer of 2015. But yeah. years prior, you saw Chechens uh, arriving in huge numbers in um in Syria, which would have obviously had to be approved by the Kremlin. Um, and then eventually you see that followed with mercenaries um, and you know, and then from there you saw the official uh Russia's official entry. Can you um discuss when you first saw the signs of Russia entering Syria and what do you think Russia's motivation was to get involved in Syria? Well, you know, I mean as as you know, like the the Russian you know Syria was a Russian ally you know, slash sort of Cold War client state going back to the early days of Hafez al-Assad's rule in the 70s, right? So there are longstanding military and security and intelligence connections and political connections between Moscow and Damascus that go way back. You know, the Syrian, um, the Syrians buy most of their, you know, military kit from Russia. Um, so the ties there were already pretty deep. You know, a lot of these, a lot of, Syrian military officers and security officers will have spent time in Russia, training with Russians. So, so there's there's a sort of you know uh, familiarity that was already there. Um, you know, I, I think early on, though, I would sort of characterize the first phase of Russian support for Assad as being one of you know there's sort of political and diplomatic support pretty much from the get go. Right, because this is happening um, at the same time as we're seeing the U.S.-led intervention in Libya, which you know the Russians looked at that and sort of said, "No, we cannot let this happen in Syria." Right. Um, so there's a level of political and diplomatic support that's happening right away. There are, as I mentioned, those sort of pre-existing intelligence, you know, intelligence sharing, you know security connections, things like that, um, you know, weapons shipments, all of that's going on pretty much the first, you know, three, four years of the war. Um, you know, the next phase of it was, I believe, in the fall of 15, when the Russians, when Putin decided and came to believe probably rightly that if Russia did not actually intervene and bring its air power to bear in particular on the conflict that Assad was probably going to be overthrown or that the regime would sort of morph into something else that 
um, wouldn't be as amenable to, to Russian interests. And so they intervened in a sort of whole, you know, hearted way in the fall of 15 and really probably would, you know, I think Russian intervention was the decisive factor in ensuring that Assad remained in power. I don't remember the numbers, um, you know, specifically, but I believe that by the fall of 15, Assad was only in control of something like a quarter of the territory. You know, it had been diminished pretty significantly, in particular between 2013 and 2015. And you know, the, the Russians ensured that the Syrians could reverse those gains uh, or reverse those losses. And I think in terms of why uh, Putin got involved, you know, I think um, primarily I see it as, you know, there's obviously some some deep things around, again, longstanding military connections, the you know, desire for access to the port of Tartus and, um you know, there, there, I think, was some rationale around a desire to avoid, you know, having Damascus become some major city in a, you know, Islamic caliphate. Uh, but primarily, I think it was about ensuring that a, you know, what had been or what Putin probably saw as a client state remained in power and was not sort of this wasn't a territory that would be won by the United States in a kind of, in one view of, of the region that, that I think Putin probably maintains sort of this Libya fell to the United States. You know, we sort of Gaddafi fell, the United States might turn Libya into a client state. I mean, that hasn't particularly gone well. Um, yeah. But, you know, you look at Syria and he said, not here, you know, we're not going to let you do this here. And I think, um, you know, really, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about some of the connections to, to Ukraine, you know, you're starting, you saw this kind of yet another piece of this kind of growing Russian confidence in, um, you know, in, in spreading its influence and power more broadly outside of just the, the sort of near abroad, right? Um, and moving, you know, contesting us uh, more broadly throughout the world. I think Syria was a was a, you know, a battlefield in, in the way that Putin saw his, his conflict with us and with the West. You know, uh, David, let me ask you something. Have you ever seen any connections between ISIS and Russia in Syria? Mm. You know, I actually, so no, um, I don't doubt that there could have been, but I'm not actually familiar with any that I have seen. Um, the the Russian you know although I think on that on that topic one thing that does bear mentioning is when the Russians intervene sort of more you know directly in in the fall of fifteen a lot of the language um, and it, this is an important point also about the way that the Russians have now sort of framed the war in retrospect a lot of the language was very much about we are fighting terrorism right we're fighting global Salafi jihadist terrorism and, you know, the face of that is, is the Islamic state. And when you look at the, what the Russians were targeting, especially, yeah. especially early on, uh, in that air campaign, um, yeah. that wasn't the case. And, and the reason for that was, I think, twofold. One was when you looked at the rebel groups that had actually really, that posed the greatest threat to Assad's control over the major cities, you know, they were not ISIS at the time. 
Uh, and two, the Russians had a desire to smash groups that had more local legitimacy, frankly, um, and that were potentially true alternatives to Assad in terms of their ability to govern territory. And, um, you know, ISIS, while, while, while brutal and, and you know, eventually able to, you know, to capture large swaths of Syria, was was probably not the most threatening in terms of a longer term sort of political replacement to Assad. And so the Russians, um, you know, and, and Syrians were intent on smashing groups that um, that, uh, you know, that, that could have been an alternative. So, you know, that that they they said one thing, surprise, surprise. And then, you know, the military campaign, especially early on, was very much not a counter ISIS campaign. It became one in phases. Um, as, as ISIS became sort of all that was left of or, or one of the most robust groups in the in sort of the, the insurgency and, and in the civil war opposing Assad. But um, early on, it was not they were not the target. OK, yeah. And then. Yeah, um, oh, go ahead. Sorry to wrap up on a bigger context. It's very interesting because as Russia was fighting the war on terrorism, I mean, there were investigations of Russia potentially pulling the same terrorists throughout Europe and strategically (laughs) setting them in place before European elections. And suddenly we would see a whole slew of, you know, uh, terrorist attacks across Paris and other capitals with Russia running their disinformation propaganda machines, specifically on social media and through their local co-opted people, um, to then, you know, uh, fragment the society by calling for closed borders. And, you know, these migrants are the ones who are causing this and giving basically the rise to the far right populace that started sweeping across Europe from like 2015 on and then into U.S. Yeah, it's a very, you know, the, the, I mentioned the regi- the Syrian regime releasing a, a group of, of jihadists from prison, you know, in, um, uh, probably in, I think it was in April of 2011. It was within a few months of the uprising starting, you know, and, and we kind of look at that. It, it's with a, with a Western sort of American lens on this, you're like, I can't, I struggle to understand right. how this happens or what, how you get there. But the logic makes, you know, it, it's effective. You you take these people who you know are going to go off up into northwest Syria and create insurgent groups to then fight you. But the thing you do not want to face if you're Assad is a protest movement that is largely peaceful, that cuts across large swaths of the population. Um, that is that is the kind of that is absolutely the thing you must avoid. And I think, you know, my sense is, you know, Putin probably would have similar, uh, you know, if you look 10 years ago now at the protests in Russia, you sort of, that's the fear, right, is is I have a, a large swath of my society becomes politically active and um, it's against me. You know, it's easier for these types of authoritarian systems to fight, um, to use violence, right, they, and, and to, to oppose somebody who is, is shooting at me. You know, that that's the dynamic they want to create. And, you know, when it came to ISIS or when it came to sort of the, um, some of these more more extreme Salafi jihadist groups that were largely Iraq war veterans, in many cases, you know, they they let them go um, while they while they arrest and detain and torture a lot of civil society activists who are you know actually have far less maximalist demands, uh, you know, yeah. against the regime. 
fact, I wanted to get to that in your book, now in Damascus Station, use of violence and things like that. You came, you left Syria, right? And you began writing, right? And yeah. you wrote this book that has gotten fantastic reviews, uh, Damascus Station. And you specifically, right, wrote about bringing about sort of the human aspect. Yeah. Okay. Of the atrocities that the Syrians, right, had to encounter, right? We yeah. were talking about use of violence, the control by the state or thinking that they can control so on and so forth. Can you expand a little bit? Can you, can you explain why you decided to write it this way? And also not a bit about the book so that way, no, we can, we know more about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so Damascus Station is, was my first novel. It came out a couple of years ago and it takes place in the early years of the Syrian civil war. It's a story about a CIA case officer and his Syrian recruit who sort of, you know, break one of the cardinal rules of, of espionage and fall into a forbidden relationship. They they go into Damascus to hunt down the killer of another CIA case officer. And in the process of that really come face to face with this, you know, dark and sort of uh, in the book, it's, it's fictionalized, but it's based in sort of reality, the sort of dark secret at the heart of the Syrian regime. Um, and, and really come face to face with a lot of the contradictions and the, and the, the passion and, and all of that in their own relationship. And, you know, as you note, it's, it's, it's a, it's a spy novel, right? And it's a novel, right? So it's not, it's not purporting to be a, a true accounting of the war, but, you know, I, I hope that it's also a bit of a story or a reflection of what it means to be human in the middle of a really inhuman conflict. And I chose, uh, characters that I hope sort of capture different, I, I step back. I really wanted to punch windows into all sides of the conflict because it struck me in observing it that you had many people, even on the regime side, even in the security services who, you know, sort of understood they were bound up in a, an amoral project and yet didn't have the sort of, you know, I think we kind of hope that, oh, if you're going to stand up or you're going to put your gun down, you're going to go and, you know, join the join the insurgents or the rebels. And and, and yet you kind of have this approach to, to the state and to the war from many different quarters that's much more apathetic. Um, and and frankly, you have people who have a lot less agency than, than we do, you know, here, here in the West. And so I was intrigued by how a whole bunch of different Syrians from different backgrounds, you know, from Damascene Christians to, you know, an, an, an Alawite um, security officer to, you know, a, a rebel from a fairly well-to-do family in, in Aleppo. Like, how, how do these people respond to the stimulus of the war? And, you know, can I step, can I, can I get through this muck of, this cartoonish muck of, on the one hand, you know, everyone in the government's evil and you have these sort of robotic evil murderers who are killing everybody. And, you know, can I, on the other side, you've got, you know, all these, all these Syrians who it was entirely peaceful. Can, can I, can I step away from the like cartoons and get down to the level of the individual humanity on, on all sides of it that really shows what people had to do to survive and that there was tremendous evil done um, in particular on the part of the regime. And that's painted very clearly in the book, you know, um, 
and 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 but also on many sides heroism and love for family and loyalty. Um, so I wanted to do all that, and I also wanted, and I realized it's a very delicate balance. Um, but I didn't want this to become some kind of hey, there's moral equivalency, right? And there aren't. And everyone's just kind of the same, you know. I, I, I don't, I don't think that was true in Syria, and I hope that doesn't come through in the book. You know that this is the regime bears moral responsibility for what's happened. The preponderance of people who have died have died because of the Assad regime and its choices. Um, but at the same time, there's a level of complexity here at the individual level that, to me, felt important to to get across in the novel. And so I, I really wanted that. I really wanted that piece to come through. Yeah, I am. I am a director of the Syria Ukraine network, and I deal a lot with um, specifically the Syrian Emergency Task Force. And one of my dear friends, Omar Al Shagri, he, I mean, at 15, was taken hostage by the Syrian forces. Everyone around him murdered. He was tortured. He was taken out to the courtyard. And he thought that was it. He, um, you know, was going to die. Um, They took out a gun to shoot him. And then next thing he knows, he wakes up in Turkey. And his mother somehow managed to, after years, get him out of the prison because of Mm -hmm. the prior connections. And he, like, was in and out of consciousness. Eventually, um, they took him to Sweden. And now he does a lot of speaking events, you know, with us. Uh, to to discuss what was done, you know, to the people who were tortured in these prisons, who were murdered, and I mean, and then I met the bulldozer and the um, grave digger who mm. the Syrian Emergency Task Force got out. The great the bulldozer would collect all the uh, uh people who the regime murdered. And then just, you know, and, and make the mass graves. And uh, and then the grave yeah. digger would dig them in. Yeah. And these graves just kept growing and growing. And I think the UN and what, half a million stopped counting. Yeah, they, stopped. they did. But, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. It, and it's sickening as well, all of the people that are profiting um, and disseminating all of the disinformation and propaganda. Yeah. And the Russian, that's really sickening. Like that really... Personally, I look at it and I just Russia. Like, yeah. <laughs> that is Russia for you. They, it's, uh... it's very, it's very fascinating. To, it's totally, it was totally unexpected to me, actually. It probably shouldn't have been, but I, I when I was getting back into, I mean, I, I left, I left the CIA. I, you know, had been writing the book, but I put it aside and I did something else for five years. And when I came back to it and started to. I know I wanted to write a book that covered Syria and I wanted to cover the first few years of the war. And, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the extent to which you had people who seemed very clearly aligned with Russian interests who had taken this extreme interest in the Syrian war and in its historiography in a lot of ways um, and, and in diminishing the experience of, of victims of of the Assad regime was like I, I, it was a really eye opening experience for me because I I kind of I knew there was you know you kind of know there's this nexus for all the reasons we talked about between Damascus and Moscow but it's like what what interests do why why does this matter so much you know to these to these kind of you know pro Russian types and I think 
you know, the, the conclusion that I've come to is that, you know, the Russians, there's sort of this level of importance in the myth-making for Russia where they go back, and I think, you know, you're sort of seeing an effort to do this in Ukraine. You, you, you saw the same kind of move in, in Chechnya. Um, you got to go back. You got to create this narrative that's very simple. There are good guys and bad guys. Russia's on the side of the good guys. This was Assad versus the terrorists, right? That's kind of the, the starting point for a lot of these pro-Russian voices is, okay, well, it was just, you know, it was a, it was a U.S.-supported sort of, you know, al-Qaeda branch versus Assad, you know, and Assad's promoting stability, and he's secular, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And then once you do that, you know, I I, I became it really it – it was interesting to me to, to get to the, the insidious nature of what that narrative does because and, – and one of the things that, that I hope Damascusation does in a very small way is, like, let's elevate individual experience about this war – and make sure that that doesn't get stomped down by this yeah. by this narrative, which is a very – it elevates sort of systems and ideology and sort of diminishes the individual quite intentionally. And so you find, you know, whether it's some mm-hmm. of these kind of Russian trolls on Twitter or whatever, that, that yeah. ha- they – in order to support that, that, that narrative, you have to discredit individual people who have experienced the war in a way that doesn't suit your narrative. You know, and so you see this level to sort of, you know, dox and shame and discredit um, people who survived, you know, detention and torture under the Assad regime, people who survived chemical weapons attacks and used by the Syrian regime. Um, so you have to sort of suppress the individual, you know, and, and the really sick thing is that it then forces you to sort of turn critical thinking on, on its head, right, on the other hand. So you're like, Okay, well, it was the regime that did this, and then you create a counter narrative with a set of supporting facts that just turn it on its head. Oh no, it was the opposition that did this chemical weapons attack, or it was you know it was the Ukrainians who blew up the theater in Mariupol, right? Let's just create yeah. a set of alternatives. Let's create a whole bunch of articles and these crazy yeah. publications that we can put out there, and here's some facts. And if you come to these things fresh without context, it can actually be very bewildering to try to understand what's going on. Um, so there's a very um, subtle, in some ways not so subtle, of course, uh, set of plays that are run here that kind of get down to some pretty deep foundations around individuality and truth and critical thinking. And is it is it good to be cruel? You know, like, I mean, there's almost this sort of elevation of cruelty, um, you know, in a lot of uh, of the Syrian sort of experience. I mean, I have a book behind me written by Sam Dagger called Assad or we burn the country, you know, it kind of became this, it's good to actually be vile and cruel. Um, that's, that's rewarded. You know, you're, 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 uh, you're a patriot. If you do that, you know, it's, um, it's a very, it's a very twisted thing when you kind of get down to some of the, the frame of it all. Yeah. Twisted wow. is the right word. Twisted I can say, right. um, Listening and growing up with Russian propaganda, um, you know, this this is stems from from centuries of, of insanity, of cruelty, of brutality. I mean, this is what, yeah, whether you you go back, you know, 50 years, 100 years, 150 years, the same story uh, remains in Russia. And, um, you know, they suck with everything else, but mind control and um, 
uh, information warfare is something they excel at. And unfortunately, which really, you know, is, is extremely unfortunate and dangerous because we are globally where we are now. Um, because uh, the West never took this seriously enough. They did not understand. And, I mean, I remember interviewing years ago for um, for uh, when I was uh, doing research for Craig Unger, um, uh, Oleg Kalugin. And, I mean, at mm. that time, <clears throat> he was the head of um, the KGB's first directorate, which oversaw um, counterintelligence operations uh, across the globe. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, enough, he loved Syria. But he, um, you know, at that time, they were using the same tactics. I mean, the yeah. KGB, whatever security services existed in Russia at whatever time period, the tactics had always been the same. At that time, he would put anti-Semitic articles, have them planted in Western and U.S. media, you know, and it would have a smaller reach. Um, you know, he would implant uh, people, you know, in various, uh, during the civil rights movement, um, not him alone, but the KGB, in order to drive this, you know, wedge uh, with the race yeah. wars. And this is something they've always done. And they do it for two purposes. One, they want to, you know, muddle the truth. That way you have so many versions and so many complexities and whatnot thrown at you that you just give up and you're like, whatever, this is too, yeah. too complicated. And two, um, also for their own reasons, like you said, to make themselves look like they're doing something good. And I... um to finish that thought, we'll never forget how stupid they are when um, the Russian uh, defense ministry had released like a satellite image. And they were like, look, you see the United States is escorting ISIS and providing safe haven. And like, I'm looking at this image, whatever. Thank goodness, one thing that social media is good for, that the internet sleuths realized that there was a clip from a Call of Duty video game that they had used as an official record with a, coming with an official statement from Russia's defense ministry to try to paint the United States with ISIS. I mean, then it got quickly removed and never right. spoken about. But this is the level that they will go through to basically, you know, show that they are doing the right, right. despite the atrocities that they commit everywhere they go. And that the West and, you know, and the whole democratic system is actually, you know, the one that is committing That's right. all this pain and horror and inequality and whatnot. It's well, and, 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 you know, it's funny, the Call of Duty thing makes me think, you know, when you, when you start, when you're promoting a sort of ethos or, or worldview more generally in which there isn't, like nothing is really true. There is like, there's no, you can't be caught in a lie by definition, yeah. you know? So, so it doesn't really matter, you know, like um, put the thing yeah. out there and then, okay, well, let's take, you're sort of almost proving the joke in a lot of ways um, that let's just, you can just kind of continue to smash at the truth without having to create your own credible version of it, you know, um, that it, it's, I, I still find it is just sort of wraps your head. It's 
it's it's hard to keep those thoughts in your head because they're so it's such a paradox and on the face of it so contradictory, especially to you know, if you're trying to really find out, hey, well what really happened here or what's really true, uh it's very assaulting on that yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. That's right. Yeah. If you overeat. One minute they're saying one thing and then the next. Right? Something else. Yes. Because you've got to justify whatever in those two minutes, because it could also be the, you know, but it's true when you have absolutely nothing that is quote unquote true, right? Then anything can be or anything, right? It, it's what you're saying. I mean, yeah. I, I've seen the most insane and the most troubling part of this happened just inside of Russia. I frankly could care less. Good riddance yeah. to the Soviet Union, and thank God I'm in America. Um, if this happened inside of Russia, it's one thing, but then they export this because then they right. use these same mechanisms to indoctrinate, you know, the people who left the Soviet Union, Ukraine, and and or Russia, and have moved abroad, and then they indoctrinate them, you know, through their Rosetrudnichstvo, which is frankly an SVR front. To brainwash these people so they never assimilate fully into the West. And so that you basically have people living inside, you know, the country that is, frankly, giving them, like, safe haven. And they hate the country. And they mm. attack the country. And, I mean, even growing up in, in you know, uh, I'm half uh, Ukrainian, half Russian, growing up when we left the Soviet Union, like you had people here who were criticizing. It's mainly the Russians because um, Ukrainians do not behave. They were always, you know, considered as slaves back in the Soviet Union, as mm-hmm. were the Georgians and Kazakhs and um, everyone who's not an ethnic uh, Russian. But um, they like are here and they will criticize, you know, and basically call Americans stupid and you know and. Just as an overall blanket thing and like, oh, right. this is not good. This doesn't work. And I'm like, well, we have airports, you know, if nothing works here. <laughs> yeah, just pick up and go. Just saying. You know, <laughs> don't bring your cars. At least, at least the EU finally said, no, you can't bring your cars. They have a, a list of 150 things. The worst thing, too, Olga, is that you're seeing this kind of discourse, this flip-flopping, continuous um, you know, truth, untruth, that kind of thing in the UN. I mean, you you see them standing up publicly, right? I mean, it, if it's yeah. on social media, we can fight it. You sit there and you say, okay, no, this is the truth. But how do you fight the people inside your borders? That, to me, is more oh, no, concerning because... First, Russia's like, yes, go take every country, live there, enjoy whatever, and then obviously they don't let anyone fully assimilate. And then, you know, the minute, look at, uh, I mean, Russia's first hand besides Chechnya was uh, in in, in, um, Estonia because Estonia didn't want a freaking Soviet statue. Who wants a Soviet statue smack in the the middle of their town square? So they moved it to the grave. I would have, you know smashed it and then buried it they were nice enough to move it out of town to the grave what did russia do immediately activated the russian speakers inside of estonia to cause the biggest protest ran disinformation campaigns then smacked estonia with probably the first state-sponsored 
uh, cyber attack that wiped out uh, and took Estonian government and financial institutions and everything offline. That's where it becomes a danger. And this is something that, you know. Well, this brings us to maybe a discussion on the malign influence, you know, the operations that are inside David. And I wanted to ask you about this because I think it's a good way to hook up, right? Mm -hmm. With that. With this kind of thing. And we've seen these for ages. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm living here in Italy. I see it all the time. You know, there's... You're owned by Russia. It's one uh, of the yeah. satellites. I know, please. Okay. Um, they're moving money. You know, the oligarchs. We have a lot of these, you know, uh, these figures, influential um, figures who are impacting on Western politicians that we see and other key figures that are there funding all of these operations against the West to subvert democracy, right? And we see it, and to get our own countries to implode, our societies to implode. Yeah. Like, David, I, I want you to comment on this. Um, what are, for example, stra- uh, Russia's strategic goals and intelligent recruitment tactics in this regard? Boy, well, I said I said just easy questions in the before we. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I I think so. I think there's a lot of one point I would make is just that there's a tremendous. There can be a tendency when we consume news about these types of networks or these types of Russian influence operations or you know the the presence of Russian illegals you know here or throughout Europe. Mm-hmm. to kind of treat it like it's some artifact of the current conflict between us and, and, and Russia or the Western Russia. And, and in fact, the idea of, you know, these, these sort of networks and black cash being, you, you know, being established inside Western financial hubs and used to, you know, run operations, be they influence or recruitment or otherwise, you know, um, goes back decades and decades and decades and is a large part of the story about, you know, how Vladimir Putin and his, the people around him came to consolidate power inside Russia itself. Um, so I think there's a continuity here that's just important to sort of contextualize first. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, when you see what they're doing now across the U.S. and Europe, I mean, you, you have to think it's, many of the reasons you just mentioned, which is how do we create agents of influence inside newspapers, inside, um, you know, people who have large Twitter followings and some people who have, you know, are sort of fringe politicians throughout, or maybe have been fringe politicians throughout the United States and Europe. How do we create nodes of influence that allow us to promote our narrative, to enable us to get things done, to enable us to move money in and out? I mean, it's just sort of, um, everything, you know, how, how do we subvert? I, I think at its most philosophical level, though, it's how do we subvert the foundations of a Western system that's largely representative democracies um, that have been able for, for many, many years to largely respond to Russian aggression and to, Russian expansionism in a coherent way, how do we subvert the United States and Europe and their ability to do that um, coherently? And I think, you know, I, I, I'm forgetting where I 
read this because I don't want to take credit for it, but I saw a, a piece recently that talked about, you know, this kind of change that has slowly crept into Putinism and into his own worldview around is not so much interest that there are missions, you know, there's sort of a mission to resist the West, to fracture the West. And, and I think that's probably a little bit too much of a point on it. I think, you know, he perceives Russian in a twisted way that there are Russian interests, state interests, et cetera. But there's a missional aspect to this um, that I think we sometimes miss when we just kind of cherry pick these types of reports. There's, there's a, there's a coherence here and it's, it's a desire to subvert the things that, that have supported, you know, the U S led and European led order for, you know, the past 70 years. Um, and, you know, the, the Russian intelligence services, well, there's definitely a Keystone cops aspect to a lot of what they do, which I think we sometimes miss, you know, and as a writer of spy fiction, there's sometimes a tendency to let's paint them as cunning and kind of all knowing and, you know, and, and, and extremely competent. And, and there are elements of truth to that, but there's also, you know, there's also, theater to this and a sort of incompetence that that undergirds all of it um, as well, which they kind of don't care about because, you know, I think they're happy for the press and the theater and um, the, the the feeling of chaos that, that these types of, of operations can engender, you know. I agree with you too, um, 100%. And um, it's actually interesting because you, you talk about, you know, sometimes – the incompetence and like, you know, the KGB services versus their, their FSB that it changed letters to, but the KGB spy masters would actually, I mean, they're probably spinning in their graves right now because like <laughs> you have people who were like sent, you know, GRU agents uh, who were sent to kill Skripal and I mean, they got drunk. Whereas, like, during the Soviet, right. <laughs> then are partying in their hotel, whereas, like, during the Soviet union, I mean, any agents, you know, if they had to stand and, like, not use the restroom for 20 hours until <laughs> they, they get permission, they wouldn't. And here you have this incompetence, which, frankly, it's funny, but I also think is more dangerous because of how incompetent they are. And for instance, even with Russia, and I think it's it's a, a mix of corruption and just, I, I don't know, it's that whole mindset is crazy. But, but I well, even with the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, when they took it over, I mean, of course, the strategy is to use it and blackmail the West that they sure. can blow it up at any point. But I was just as concerned that someone drinking and like, you know, happens to be yeah. like, oh, let me drive this military Hang through here, <laughs> drunk is going to end up causing the biggest catastrophe, you know, in Europe. So, well, and you know, I think one of the, one of the most interesting books I read while researching the second novel was uh, just a series of kind of memoirs of, of guys whose names you wouldn't know who were just first they were first chief directorate officers in the KGB throughout the mm-hmm. 70s and 80s, and you, they're just sort of talking about what it was like. Day, day to day, you know, not not here's the most amazing operation I ever participated in or whatever. It's just day to day. What was it like? And, you know, you get all of the usual bureaucratic incompetence and jealousies and, you know, people drunk on the job and chaotic operational planning um, that I think we also have to bear in mind when we're talking about, you know, a country that I think does have this sort of missional view of we're in 
like a civilizational conflict with the Americans and the Europeans um, and and are attempting to recruit people all over the globe and attempting to prepare, you know, to sort of create an information space that is both chaotic and pro-Russian, as we've discussed. But then at the same time, you know, you have the, these are massive institutions and bureaucracies that are populated with people. And um, there's a tremendous amount of just normal things <laughs> that 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 make it so that sometimes these these best laid plans don't work um, or come off yeah. making them look foolish or theatrical or whatnot. Yeah. yeah. Now to tie in Ukraine. So um, we um, saw in 2014 uh, Russia threw basically their mercenaries and, and, and you know, um, groups like Wagner that was specifically created for this um, initially and through Spetsnaz and other military uh, and intelligence officials, they launched annexation of Crimea, occupation of Donbass. Um, and we saw that take place, and um, then we see Russia, you know, go into Syria officially, participate in the massacre of, I mean, my goodness, uh, I don't, I don't know what part to attribute to Assad and to Russia, but it was definitely a huge number because they were carpet bombing cities, city after right. city. They were carpet bombing them. They were hitting basically what we're seeing now in Ukraine on a wholesale scale, hitting humanitarian corridors, hospitals, schools, churches, anything and anywhere civilians could be hiding. Russia was strategically um, targeting them. Um, and then you see them go back to, you know, and launch this full-scale invasion of Ukraine while, by the way, they are bombing right now still. With everything happening in Ukraine, they are still bombing Syria. I mean, uh, constantly, every few days, you see Russian forces bomb right. a part of the opposition-held area. But the West didn't, for some reason, react properly. And do you think two things? One had the West, you know, after the illegal annexation of Crimea and Donbass and occupation of Donbass, and then, you know, with Syria happening right shortly after, had the West properly reacted and seen Russia as the threat it is and cut basically what they did February, you know, 25th of 2022, where suddenly they dropped sanctions and did everything that should have you know, should have been done a while ago. Do you think that would have prevented um, Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine? And second, how do we make Europe and the United States for future, for the future, like, understand that they have to take steps to deter autocratic regimes before we get to a point of, you know, what we are seeing now, for instance, in Ukraine, where you have a genocide and at the same time a huge yeah. threat, not only to global security, but also to European security and U.S. security. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot to unpack. <laughs> it is a lot to unpack. I mean, I think, and, and I'll just preface this by saying, obviously, these are, you know, it's it, Impossible to answer, right? Is the is the high level answer? It's just who knows? Um, because I certainly, you know, even though I have a, a view on sort of how did Putin think about the moves between these conflicts and you know what he hoped to get in Ukraine, I don't, you know, 
what's going on in his head, I'd be I, I'd be a much wealthier man if I could answer that question accurately. Um, uh, you know, I think I think that my my sense is that well, Syria and Ukraine are both important to Russia and to Putin. You know, Ukraine is is orders of magnitude more so, and so even if there had been a more robust U.S. effort to sort of um, I don't know, blunt Russian influence in Syria or to militarily punish Assad for the way he had prosecuted the war in the first few years, um, or to even, you know, try to remove him, uh, you know, fully from power and, and try to dismantle aspects of his regime. Like if we had done those things, um, I, I'm not sure that we would have had a different outcome in, in Ukraine, um, or that he would have decided it, it, it wouldn't have made sense to, uh, to prosecute the war. Now, I, I do think, though, that the the sort of trail of, you know, Georgia, Crimea, all of the external assassinations, um, Syria, you know, you're sort of in each of those. I think there was a there was the Russians were were looking to see what's the response going to be. And probably came away from all of those experiences up until, and maybe even including the way we responded to the, the full-scale invasion in the winter of 22, kind of looked at that and said, they're not really going to do anything, really. You know, there, there's going to be a lot of talk, and there's going to be not much truly done to resist the expansion of our power. Um and I'm I'm not sure if Syria would have changed that trajectory in Ukraine. I think it's it's possible, but I'm skeptical just because of the way that the actual ter the, the control of the territory, the destruction of the people and the nation seems to have weighed in Putin's mind and conscious. Like it seems like Syria may not have affected that strategically. I don't know. But I'm just offering a sort of a, a speculation. And what do you think if we, uh, we responded after the legal annexation of Crimea? Do you think that would have deterred Russia? Well, I think, yeah, when you get into the Ukraine, like then, then it starts to become, I think, maybe more direct where you're seeing, okay, I put a, I put this chess piece down here and then something comes right up and meets it, you know, um, to sort of mess with an analogy. Um, so I think that that seems more likely to me. I mean, my my sense, and again, you know, I'm coming at Russia mostly as somebody who who's writing fiction about it, but my sense is that, you know, there was a kind of a view of, okay, well, we didn't really do a whole lot after 2014 in that theater either. We kind of let them use it, use Ukraine as kind of a petri dish for, you know, information operations, cyber warfare, you know, sort of this salami slicing approach of like, how can, we, how do we just kind of turn up the temperature and see where we get a reaction? Um, that we kind of didn't provide that reaction, right? Um, we, we never really hit back in a way that, that would have registered with Putin and the guys around him of like, oh, we got, we got punched in the face. Like maybe we should go and try something else. I don't think we ever did that. I think that might have affected the outcome, certainly more so than, than, than Syria would have. Um, and I think, you know, I have to give us maybe some credit in that we've, in a very slow and frustrating way, you know, have have responded differently to this. Um, and, you know, my hope is that 
we'll be able to respond in a more uh, effective and you know accelerated way with a lot of these kind of the kit and weapon systems and things like that going forward. But you know, it, it I hope that I hope that out, the outcome of this will be a Ukrainian victory that is very clearly you know that that gets into the the hearts and minds of a lot of you know these these Russian leaders is like we we lost you know um hopefully we can finally draw a line here yeah they need to be humiliated because that's what Russia understands yeah. now to get to uh the last part um i actually laughed and let me try to ask a question without laughing so christopher ray the fbi director was yeah. um, giving a speech at the spy museum or like an interview on a panel at the spy museum and when asked about russia you know he gave his assessment and then he said that there are russian spies operating on yeah. u.s soil and that it is way too big and he didn't even take into account because then he further expanded that's not even to take into account you know, the the willing and unwitting agents of influence who are operating for Russia as well. This, he was just specifically speaking of Russian intelligence officers. I mean, for someone who's monitored this, I was like, cool, good morning to you. Um, <laughs> but message that she sent me. <laughs> she said, oh, it's a good morning. Yeah, look, I'm like, our FBI director woke up good morning to him. <laughs> Where has he been? But anyway, with that said, um, you know, we know that it has gotten out of control. I mean, literally, there are so many operations running on U.S. soil. Um, what do we do? How do we, <laughs> how do we start kind of, you know, cleaning it up when we still maintain an open door policy? I mean, for God's sakes, I remember even the, what is he, the Brazilian? Uh, President uh, Bolsonaro, you know, practically attempted to reenact uh, January 6th there, and then next thing you know, he's hanging out in Florida. And I'm right. like, why? Why is this? Why do we yeah, have an open? Is this happening? Yeah, like we. Something? Yeah. Uh, we, when we went over, okay, to see my sister in the States, my sister lives in the States, okay? Mm -hmm. So uh, we go over, and with my husband, who had registered with um registered with the esta he you know he did all of the uh online stuff before and the whole business they still kept us at the border for two hours which mm. i don't have any problems with but you have spies running around the states with all sorts of you should just say hi i'm a russian spy you just <laughs> Oh sure, come on in. Although you know, we've had just not to knock, um, you know, the FBI has done a wonderful job. We did um indict uh, a Russian agent Berlinova recently, and yeah. I mean, I actually was very excited because I saw her interview in yeah. um, Russian press, several of them, and besides the fact of her carrying on how she's being crucified and this whole, you know, story was fabricated, she gave the advice to Russians, do not go to U.S. And I was like, please, thank That's you. That's good. <laughs> keep, keep repeating yeah. it. Because oh, that's David, what do we do to decrease <laughs> presence? Or if that's at all possible, what's your view on this? Well, I, I certainly echo the fact that um, – you know, I think structurally it's increasingly tricky because you're seeing, and this is this is true prior to the invasion too, I'm sure, but it's only been accelerated by some of the, you know, expulsions of diplomats and things like that, and, and rightly so. But 
you know, you, you probably have a structural tilt toward the Russians using people who are not diplomats to collect much of the same information and um, to, you know, putting aside the influence operations for a second. So structurally, that's really hard, right? Um, if you are dealing with officers under kind of non-official cover or you're frankly just dealing with volunteers, I mean, you're talking about a tremendously complicated problem. Um I mean, look Not on Twitter. You yeah. see and, well, American and, 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 after American, like literally, like they get notes and the same operation. Like they right. speak the same things and it's like they got their morning memo. Like this is what you're going to tweet well, today. And, and that's and that's the more kind of insidious parts in a, in a lot of respects because, you know, I, I'm always struck by um, uh, the – the fallout from uh, the ghost stories operation, all those illegals that were rolled up in 2011 or something like that. Gordon Carrera wrote a great, a great book about it. And when you get down to what they actually accomplished, they didn't do a whole lot, you know, and these were official directorate S illegals in the States. And for years, they're kind of like, like the impact was, was extremely limited. So the, the, and it's, it's not to diminish the sort of, um, the reality or frankly the effectiveness of a lot of, of Russian espionage in the States is just to say that there's actually, you know, when you zoom out to kind of the like the informational level and you think about getting the same talking points and the same script infected into the Twitter bloodstream or the cable news bloodstream so that ordinary Americans kind of have are taking Russian talking points, you know, that's almost a more effective you know, yeah. you know, intelligence operation then kind of quote unquote running a spy here in, 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 you know, in the States or a Russian intelligence officer running an asset in the States. So it depends on who that asset is. Um, but that stuff, you know, which you talk about in relationship to Ukraine or Syria, boy, I don't you know. How do you combat that? Because you're talking about people. I mean, I get, you know, it feels to me like one way, which again, feels very tricky to navigate is, you know, I would have to imagine that a lot of these people are being paid by compensated in some way through some system of shells and cutouts that leads back to organizations that are in Moscow and St. Petersburg or throughout, you know, maybe Europe that are being run kind of out of these black cash pots that the, the Russian intelligence services use. So can we kind of, can we get to the bottom of those? I mean, I, that's a that's a question that's above my pay grade. But as I see a lot of this activity, particularly in the social media space, you, know, you kind of do wonder who's funding this. You know, oh, somebody yeah. is, right? We always talk about it's like okay, yeah. well, who's here? You know, I see more Americans invested in you know bashing Ukraine and praising Russia on social media where they probably can't even locate Russia or Ukraine uh, on, yeah. on a globe um, with so much passion. And I'm like, this doesn't make sense. You know, like, no. it's just, I yeah. mean, it's, 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 and it's so systematic. I mean, you see it like whichever one you look gray zone, all of their, huh. yeah. yeah. Things, like, and now they have, they have, which to your, um, to agree with you, um, 
you know, with with mocking Russia's intelligence services. And I actually told Mo this the other day. I mean, we're at a point where Russia's like recruiting Hinkle, some freaking nobody <laughs> yeah. who's like running on Twitter and just like bam, 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 bam and like spamming Twitter with cool. Kremlin garbage. And, and it could be having an effect. You know, I mean, if you look at the poll numbers around, you know, sort of U.S. support for, you know, well, American support for kind of the U.S., you know, support for Ukraine. Um, I mean, you know, the, the numbers are ticking down, and obviously, the, obviously, time does that, irrespective of any other force, because we're just sort of, well, why is that still going on? You know, let's get yeah. out. But that it's it's probably having an impact, you know, because you have a pretty robust narrative on the kind of weird end of the left of our political spectrum and the weird end of, well, increasingly more so just comment on the right of like, let's be skeptical about this. Yeah. The um, horse that's very much, that's very out yeah, of the horseshoe. It's very much in line with, with, you know, Putin's interests. So. Yeah. We call it the, the red Brown. That's what we call it here in mm-hmm. Europe because yeah. it was like a test case. We, we had a very high rate. I think it was high for Italy in, in terms of, because we know that here we've always had uh, a very strong left left wing mm-hmm. right that agreed with Russia Soviet Russia so you know there were seeds inside the country that could carry forth could carry on certain kind of anti-americanism anti okay NATO um, uh, narratives so this was you no know, and and Italy was at almost I think Close to 70% or a little over 70% in March 2022. Mm. Within three months, it went to 50%. Yeah. And this was with a bashing every single day, like inundating social media, television, journalists, the whole business. We were a test case, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Test case. But before we finish up, I got to ask you something, David, because we know that there's something coming out on October, <laughs> October the Yeah, a little, what is it, a little something. A little, uh, little, little, yeah. 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 Is that it back there? Oh, that, is, that is, that is it back there, yes. Um, oh, fantastic. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, okay. yeah. Title, maybe if I could give the title, that would be a good thing. All right. <laughs> is it Moscow X? Is that Moscow it? X. That's, you've got yeah. it. You've got it. Yes, Moscow X. So my second novel is coming out on October 3rd. Um, and it's, you know, up for pre-order now, uh, you can pre-order early and often. Um, it's, uh, it is a spy novel. It is in the same universe, I would say, as Damascus Station, but not a sort of, not a sequel. Um, and what I did with this book was I, I started with the concept or the question of what might it look like if the CIA from a covert action standpoint really took off the gloves against Vladimir Putin. Uh, and, and his regime. And oh. I, um, you know, the, the title Moscow X comes from, it's, it's a fictional component of the CIA's Russia house, which is an actual thing that exists, that in the novel is sort of charged with coming up with aggressive, outside the box ideas um, uh, to use against Russia. And it's led by this sort of wonderfully deranged case officer named Artemis Proctor, who's one of my favorite characters in the book. And the the plan that is hatched is uh, to, and I, you, as I describe it, you'll understand why the last couple of years have made this plot very hard to write and deal with. But the, the, um, the plan that is hatched is to make Putin believe that a coup is underway when one is in fact not. 
um, to sow chaos oh. inside the regime. I know. So when I was watching oh. the events in June with Prigozhin, I was like, you know, good grief. Um, well, there goes my book. Yeah, exactly. Wow, well, uh, no, that's part of the plot. That's part of the plot. Yeah, exactly. 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 Um, and so, you know, there's part of this is is you have these CIA case officers, we call them knocks, they're under non-official cover, uh, under commercial cover, who are um, – essentially dispatched to target one of Putin's money men. And over the course of this sort of dance, they come into contact with the money man's wife. Her name's Anna. Um, she's a banker. And in fact, she is a um, knock of the Russian SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Service. Um, and she's kind of playing this game all her own. I don't want to spoil anything. But the mm-hmm. book becomes the story about, you know, really this cat and mouse game between the agency and between Anna. Um and so, yeah, it, it's it's it ended up becoming a book about sort of, you know, vengeance and, and loyalty and truth inside the very real kind of shadow and covert war between Washington and Moscow. And um, I'm really excited to get it out in the world here in just a few weeks. Okay, I'm excited so I'm to book. read it. <laughs> exactly. Well, my husband's going to kill me because he's trying to get me onto either cooking books or other things just to get me away from all of this. But how can I pass that up? No, you That's can't it. pass that up. You, <laughs> delay, you can delay the cooking books a little bit. You just read Moscow X first and then we you got can work do something to else. Do. Yeah, <laughs> you got work to do. We Come have on. work to do. We have work to do. <laughs> hey, David, we really have to thank you for coming by and having this chat with us. Thank you so much. Of course. Happy to do thank it. This you. is wonderful. Thank, thank you. you. Hi, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to help us out with our independent work, please subscribe to Kremlin File on Substack and on our YouTube channel. Kremlin File is hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Kamara. Our production team is headed by Maddie Kaparov and the theme music by Oreste Kamara. So please don't forget to visit our Kremlin File Substack for links to our socials and to wherever you'd like to listen to podcasts.